Well, please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at, with the Lord's help this afternoon, verse 5. It's been a few weeks. It's been a few weeks since we've sat at Jesus' feet and we've absorbed his teaching in this sermon, what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. This is a refresher in our study of the book of Matthew. You remember that Matthew has started off his gospel, first of all, by proclaiming to you who Jesus is, by proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the very son of Abraham, therefore an inheritor of the promises that God gave to Abraham. And then as Matthew works his way through this genealogy of Jesus, he also proclaims to you that Jesus is the son of David. That is, he's royalty. He is a king, descendant of kings. But not only that, Matthew's burden from the very get-go in his gospel is to proclaim to you that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is the king of kings and lord of lords who has come, who God has promised to send to be the redeemer of his people, to establish a kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. And so in those opening verses, in that first chapter, Matthew is proclaiming that to us. And he sets the stage even further then. Matthew moves into preparing us for Jesus' ministry. He starts, I believe, when the angel appears to Joseph, even before Jesus is born. Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father. The angel even prepares Joseph for who Jesus is going to be, telling him that this is no ordinary child. This is the Savior. In fact, you shall give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew continues to prepare us for Jesus and his ministry by then showing how John the Baptist, also fulfilling prophecy, comes preparing the way of the Lord. John comes preaching and proclaiming, the Savior is coming. And we saw how the people respond to John the Baptist and his message. A preparation for the Messiah, repenting for the kingdom is at hand, and then demonstrating the need to be cleansed by being baptized by John at the river. John prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus comes, and as he pronounces himself, Jesus says, when he begins his earthly ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He pronounces that all people are to follow him if they are to enter into that kingdom. So we saw right before the Sermon on the Mount then how Jesus, when he confronts people, he pronounces and proclaims and preaches this message, the kingdom is at hand. He calls people to radically reprioritize their lives around him. That Jesus must be the number one priority ahead of everything else. And you remember, don't you, how the first disciples were called. There's Peter and his brother Andrew. They leave behind their careers as fishermen. And James and John, a similar way, leaving their boat. And even their, his, their father, because Jesus has become the number one priority in their lives as his disciples. And Jesus, we saw it that summary statements, a summary passage at the end of chapter 4, how he's going throughout all these regions, Galilee and Syria and, and other places, proclaiming, teaching people good news of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That brings us, though, to this point in Matthew's gospel of chapter 5, because this is really 
where Jesus unpacks or starts to unpack. What does it mean the Messiah has come? What does it mean that the Christ is here, his kingdom is at hand? What does it look like if someone is going to enter into that kingdom? If someone is going to be a citizen of God's kingdom, this is what it's going to be. He begins here with these Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He's going to work through all the way into through in chapter 7, giving a detailed pronouncement of this is what, if you're to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, this is what your life must look like in all of us who belong to Christ's kingdom. So as I said, we're working our way one by one through these eight Beatitudes, the opening verses in Matthew chapter 5. Just as a refresher, if you've ever wondered, why do we call them Beatitudes? Because it comes from a Latin, a Latin word, Beatus. Beatus is the Latin form of blessed is. And Jesus starts these eight sayings, blessed is, Beatus in Latin. That's why we call them Beatitudes. But here in our text today, Jesus continues to pronounce who does and who does not belong to the kingdom of heaven. How do you know? How do you know that you belong to the kingdom of heaven? Can you know? Can you have assurance? Jesus calls us to examine our hearts, to see, am I a citizen of the kingdom? Am I living according to the standards of the kingdom as it were? And Jesus' message to you today to us today, just as he was speaking then, hundreds of years ago, the same today, his message is, there is no room in the kingdom of heaven for the prideful, for the arrogant, for the vengeful, for the haughty, for the proud. No, the, those who wish to desire to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, must be meek. Blessed are the meek, he says in verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. And so our theme this afternoon for this message is very simply this, Jesus blesses the meek. Jesus blesses the meek. See my outline there, your insert in the bulletin. Jesus blesses the meek. He's already given us two other virtues, so to speak, in his Beatitudes, this third virtue of it's necessary for a Christian is meekness. Is meekness. I hope you see that Jesus' pronouncement here, blessed are the meek, just like the other two Beatitudes, is foolish in the world's eyes. It doesn't make sense. The world prizes might over meekness. Conventional wisdom, mainstream wisdom, will tell you it's foolish to be meek. Conventional wisdom says, you see, it's the conquering hero. It's the mighty conqueror, not the person who submits, who will be rewarded. The last thing that the average person wants to be labeled as is someone who's gentle or meek. I don't think it wins a lot of prizes in our world. The world around us says this, meekness is a weakness. The world around us says self-control and kindness are for cowards. Or a poverty and pride is for pushovers. The world's beatitude is simple. Might over meekness. Blessed are the mighty, for they will conquer the earth. Or 
Blessed are the prideful, the self-sufficient, the aggressive, for they will destroy their enemies and anybody who stands in their way. I mean, after all, just think about your own experience in life. Doesn't it sort of make sense in a way to you, or haven't you learned, perhaps self uh, subconsciously, that the more evil you endure in life, the more you can expect evil to come to you? Haven't you found yourself thinking that way? The more someone takes advantage of you, the more they will continue to do so? It doesn't experience teach you that the reward for putting up with wickedness is more wickedness? So you see, conventional wisdom or worldly wisdom, as it is, tells you that you need to be defensive. Otherwise, you're going to be an easy target in this life. There's a, there's a non-biblical saying, a proverb that goes like this. We must howl like wolves because wolves will immediately devour anybody who makes himself a sheep. That makes sense to us, I think. It makes sense to us. Now, people in this world will only think themselves safe when they repel every single attack, when they hit back twice for every time they've been hit. Because people in this world think they're never safe unless they can take revenge on others or defend themselves and take something else from others that has been taken from them. Most people, sadly, are going to go through this life afraid, afraid that other people will not think enough of them. They'll go through life afraid that they're going to be ashamed. Most people will go through life never willing to admit that they're wrong, always depending on their own strength and pride. But you know what Jesus has to say about such people? Jesus' message to such people is actually pretty clear. The Pharisees and teachers of the law in his day, they didn't see anything wrong with them with themselves. They thought they could get by on their own merit. Jesus' message to them is, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The great enemy of true religion is not just unbelief. The great enemy of true religion is also our pride. Because pride blinds us to see our true need in life, our true spiritual situation. You can't have life with God if you're trying to stand on your own self-righteousness. That's what Jesus' message was and is. And so Christ's teaching here in this beatitude points to our real heart problem of sin, but also he also points us to the true and inward nature of the Christian faith, the necessity of meekness. We have to be meek. We have to be meek if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, he portrays the ideal disciple here, really the uh, essential qualities of a disciple, as someone who's meek, running against worldly wisdom. Jesus teaches here, if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you have to be healed of your pride and your self-sufficiency. That meekness and not might is a necessary duty, a virtue in the Christian life. Just think about it for a second. Meekness might be 
one of the most forgotten Christian virtues uh, today in our Christian lives. But in the Bible, meekness is talked about a lot. At least uh, 31 times in the King James Version of the Bible, at least, is used the word meek or meekness. We don't use it so often in our everyday vocab today in English, meek. Uh, but it's translated in other ways in our more uh, contemporary Bible translations, like the ESV that we use. Instead of meek, it might be translated as gentle or as humble. But it's all over the it's all over the scriptures. It's essential for the Christian life. Let me give you just a few ways how that is so. Meekness, first of all, is necessary for salvation. It's necessary to approach God. Psalm 149, verse 5, which we, just, we sang earlier, says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Or James 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not only that, meekness is a virtue that Christians are commanded to put on. Second thing, Christians are to aim at. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. Third, meekness is also a quality that Christian leaders must possess for someone to be a leader in the church. Paul tells Timothy they must be meek. Or four, meekness is also necessary to perform Christian duties such as restoring wayward Christians, Galatians 6, 1. Correcting opponents, 2 Timothy 2. Receiving the implanted word of God, James chapter 1, verse 21. Meekness also melts people's hearts who are quarrelsome, Proverbs 15, verse 4. And meekness is necessary to make a defense of the gospel, Peter says in 1 Peter three fifteen. But also another way, one more way that meekness is necessary, meekness or gentleness, Paul says in Galatians five twenty three, is a fruit of the Spirit we should expect to see in any Christian. So I want you to see what I believe God's word is teaching you throughout all of scripture is meekness is a virtue, a quality of Christians that must permeate every aspect of our lives, really. Relationships in our family, relationships in our, with our friends, in the church and outside of our church. Meekness must work itself through all of your relationships and every aspect of your life. This is how you're to know, examine yourself to see if you're truly a Christian, if that identity is to mean anything. If your identity as a Christian is to mean anything, you must examine yourself, Jesus says. See if you're really a meek person. Well, what is true meekness then? Jesus teaches us to be meek. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? How can I examine myself for meekness? One person defines meekness this way, says meekness is an attitude of humble, submissive, and expectant trust in God, and a loving, patient, and gentle attitude towards others. There's two, two parts to that. Meekness is an attitude of humble, submissive, expectant trust in God, between me and God, but meekness is also a loving, patient, and gentle attitude towards others. Um, unpack this a little bit, explore this a little bit. Because the, 
the key to grasping meekness, not just knowing a definition, but really to understand what the Bible means about meekness, you need to understand that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, Bible means something very different than that idea of meekness. Meekness is not cowardness, cowardliness. Meekness is not being a, a doormat or a pushover. It's not about being passive. It's also, meekness is not about just shyness or having self-pity or a lack of confidence. According to the Bible, meekness is a, it's actually a quality of strength. Now, in, in the, the Greek use of the word, classically, meekness was used to describe things like wild animals that had been tamed or like a soothing medicine or drug, or even like a gentle breeze. So you can think of all these things, animal, drug, wind, all of these things can be very powerful in and of themselves. But when they're tamed, that's the idea of meekness. Something coming under control, a tame animal, or a drug used, potent but yet effective and gentle, to bring comfort or a wind, something under control when it's gentle. That's what meekness is. Meekness is strength under control. So as I said, meekness, as the Bible describes it, strength under control, but also requiring two things to, first of all, have a right view of yourself and God. If you understand what meekness is, you understand that I need to know who I am before God. It makes sense, actually, that Jesus teaches on meekness here in light of the two previous Beatitudes. All these Beatitudes are connected, you see. When Jesus teaches them, they follow one on the other. It makes sense that Jesus starts off by teaching you need to be poor in spirit, to recognize that you can't stand on your own before God. You are spiritually bankrupt because of your unrighteousness, because of your sin. And that quite naturally leads to a mourning over sin. If I realize before God I have no standing before him because of my sin, I I mourn over that broken relationship with God. I mourn over the fact that I stand in, in face of his judgment. All my good works are like filthy rags. And so a truly repentant person, one who's realized their poverty Someone who is mourning is going to be sad and say, as Paul did, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Only then, when you've come to grips with your poverty of spirit, you've mourned over your sin, you come to an end of yourself, and this is where pride ends and where meekness can begin. It makes very good sense then that Jesus follows up those two previous beatitudes with this blessed are the meek because a meek person a meek person is blown away by the fact that God that God can love someone like me God can love me except me a dirty sinner That God can welcome me into his family, be reconciled to me, someone who's broken faith with him so many times. He can restore a relationship with me. And he's given his only begotten son to do that. 
Jesus, who is without sin, die the death that I deserve? How is that? How is that possible? I mean, once you start thinking this way, come to this realization, that's only possible through the work of the Spirit. This is the start of meekness. I say that God can have a relationship with me. This is the beginning of true meekness, to have a right view of yourself and God. But then that leads quite naturally to the other half of knowing what true meekness is, because to be meek means you also view yourself, not just yourself, but how you view yourself is going to show in how you treat other people. To be meek means your view of yourself will show itself in your attitude to other people. That makes sense, really, because the meek person is saying, God, you have been infinitely gracious towards me. You have not squashed me like a bug, although you could. God, you have, although I deserve your wrath, your eternal wrath, you have been eternally merciful to me and patient towards me. You've not taken revenge on me, even though I've sinned against you so often. So it makes sense that I turn around and say, well, how could I possibly take out revenge on anyone else who's no greater than I am? Right? If someone has truly come to grips with how God has been so gracious and merciful to them, how could I possibly turn around then and be wrathful on other people when they've been just as worse as I, as I have? They've been just as bad as I have. You see, meekness frees you from this enslaving spirit of wanting to take revenge because you realize you didn't get what you deserved. And so meekness changes how we relate to other people. To be meek means you will display gentleness and humility, especially when you're unfairly attacked. Not just when you perhaps deserve to be treated poorly for some reason, but especially when people are taking from you when you don't deserve it, when people are vengeful towards you, when you are put into an awkward situation. To be meek is to be strong in control in moments just like that when your spirit is under trial. I like how Matthew Henry describes it. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, the meek are those who can bear attack without being inflamed by it. The meek are silent or return with a soft answer when harassed. The meek can show their displeasure when there is occasion for it without being obscene or rude or profane. Meek people can be cool when others are hot. In their patience, they can keep possession of their own souls even when, even when they can scarcely keep possession of anything else. A meek person is, is like a log of wood that's been soaked in water. It's really hard to catch on fire when they're being blasted by someone or something. Well, friends, I hope you can see that meekness is not only a, a right understanding of you and God, but also how you treat others in view of your relationship to God. Because it's one thing to go before God and confess who you are to him, it's a whole other thing to 
to stand in front of another human being and have that person call you out, have that person call you out as a sinner. We would much rather condemn ourselves in private before God than let someone else confront us and accuse us. It takes an especially meek person to be ready to confess, not only before God, but also before others, that they are a sinner deserving of God's wrath. I think one of the greatest examples of meekness that you can find in Scripture is Moses. You look at the life of Moses, you know, Moses was no pushover. Moses was no weakling. But Moses was also not a prideful, not a prideful man. In fact, the Bible says in Numbers 12, Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. And his life shows that. His life shows that a meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Think of all the times in Moses' life where he demonstrates meekness. Now think of how strong a person has to be in their character to go up against Pharaoh and all the might of Egypt. You know, asking or demanding, in fact, that Pharaoh let God's people go. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of boldness as a leader to do that. And Moses stood up against Pharaoh. And even though Pharaoh promised to let God's people go and didn't, Moses did not take revenge on Pharaoh for that. You remember how God's people were oppressed in Egypt. Moses stood up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh made that promise to let God's people go. He hardened his heart and went back on his word. Instead of seeking revenge on Pharaoh, Moses instead seeks God's help. Instead of fighting a back against Pharaoh in his own strength, Moses waits on the Lord in the Lord's strength. Or remember the time when God's people are saved, are rescued out of Egypt. They, are, they go through the wilderness and Moses is leading them. You remember how once they are in the wilderness, God's people begin to grumble. They begin to complain. They say, we don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. And they point the finger at Moses and say, Moses, this is your fault. And they're actually cursing God through Moses. They wanted Moses dead. But instead of flying into a rage against sinners, Moses instead flees to God. And he falls on God's grace and mercy, asking that God would intervene and save the people. Or you think of also Moses' leadership. It's not only challenged just by people in the congregation, so to speak. It's even challenged by his own family, Aaron and Miriam. They questioned his leadership. They not only insulted him as a leader, they also insulted him by despising the woman that he married. His own family betrayed him. His own family abused him and cursed him. But Moses didn't cry down curses on Aaron and Miriam. Instead, he cried in prayer that God would heal and save them. Friends, can you imagine this in your own life? Can you imagine if people were to criticize you and your leadership ability? Or if someone is to criticize your work? Someone's even to go to your boss and ask your boss that you be fired? Or if someone was to criticize your spouse in front of you, insult your family? Or if someone were to promise one thing and then go back on their word to you, how would you respond? Well, Moses 
He's a heroic figure. He's a fearless figure in the Old Testament. He's no weakling. And all that he does, his response is not to rely on his own strength or defend his name. It's instead to wait on God, to rely on him. He does it all by making himself small and making God great. His one exception in life is that he strikes the rock without a God instructing him. He told Moses to speak to it. Nevertheless, though, Moses is a model of meekness that I think we can all learn something from. This is what true meekness looks like. If we're to understand what Jesus is saying here, to really grasp this beatitude and desire to be citizens in his kingdom, we need to learn to be meek, to see who we are in relationship to God. And if we truly understand that, it's going to transform how we relate to other people and our attitudes. And as we do that, Jesus here makes a promise to us, doesn't he? The Beatitudes not only give us a, a teaching and exhortation of what this is, what we are to look like as citizens in the kingdom, but Jesus also gives a promise for those who do hear his teaching and obey it. His promise here, blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. This is the promise. Jesus here is almost certainly borrowing from a psalm, Psalm 37, verse 11. He's reproclaiming that promise, which says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Interesting. Jesus essentially transforming the promise from the land to the earth. Because in Scripture, you remember, when Scripture promises to God's people in the Old Testament that they'll inherit the land, what that usually refers to is the physical land of Canaan, a place that you could demarcate. That's the land that is promised first to Abraham. But Jesus here is not saying that God's people will inherit just a portion of the earth, the land of Canaan. He's not promising that Christians will receive a geopolitical nation in this life. His promise to the meek is actually much, much greater than that. That all pointed towards a much greater promise of an eternal reward. The promised hope that Jesus gives us here to the truly meek is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the renewed heaven and the renewed earth when Jesus comes again. This is the promise. Now, we rightly hear in many sermons, many Bible studies, we rightly hear about the hope that we have as Christians that one day we'll be in heaven. And that's good, and that's true. But we often forget that the Bible speaks of being in a renewed earth, this earth, the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of Scripture is not when we die, we're just going to become disembodied spirits forever. We're going to float somewhere up there. No, the promise of Scripture is that we are going to have resurrected bodies, physical bodies on a renewed earth. And that's what Jesus is pointing us to here. He's pointing us to the promise and the hope that in that day, with renewed bodies, with renewed creation, we'll be completely free from sin. We'll be completely free from corruption. This is the hope that the kingdom of God is going to restore to us. It's a hope promised 
in many places in Scripture. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or the, the prophecy, the vision of John, as you remember in Revelation 22, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And so you see, you, as a meek Christian, even though, even though you might lose so much in this life, in this earth now, even though you might lose some of your reputation, even though you might lose advancement in your job at work, uh, even though you might lose face for being a Christian, even though you might lose money, you could lose everything, earthly possessions now, the Christian lives with a hope. The Christian lives with a hope of a, a world to come, a renewed earth, that the ground you're standing on, sitting on right now, is promised to you, a greater than anything you could ever have on this earth now. Christians live with this eternal hope, much greater than a temporary possession today. So as a citizen of the kingdom, then, you as a Christian can say, like the Apostle Paul, that Christ was making us making many rich. We're having nothing, he says, yet possessing everything, even now. My friends, this is the difference. This is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. This is the, dif- the difference between the church and the world. This eternal hope of things to come, that the believer lays up treasures not here on earth, but in heaven. And so this is why you too, as a Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit, being made alive in Christ day after day, although you may not feel it every single day, God promises you are growing in meekness and therefore you can keep possession of your soul even when you can barely keep possession of anything else in this life. It's God's promise to you. And so as we hear, we absorbed Jesus' teaching, his exhortation to be meek, we understand what it is and what it is not. And we should rightly ask ourselves, shouldn't we? We should examine ourselves. Am I meek? Am I growing in meekness? How can I grow more in meekness? We know that Jesus teaches it. The problem is we often deceive ourselves, though, don't we? We think we're being meek sometimes when, in fact, we're being self-serving and we're being self-righteous and prideful. So how, how, how can you examine your heart today to know, to know if you're growing in meekness, if you're a citizen, if you desire to be? Well, I want to give you five marks of meekness that we can all use to test ourselves. I'm borrowing some of this from a, a pastor I respect, Murray Kappel. He once gave four marks of humility. I want to paraphrase and borrow some of that, give you five marks of meekness to examine in your own life. And the first mark that you need to know, really fun, really foundational mark of meekness, is very simply this, is repentance. It's repentance. That in your relationship with God, you, you quickly and regularly go to him in confession of sin. That you realize your spiritual bankruptcy 
in front of God, your poverty in spirit, you go then to the throne of grace, asking God for his mercy. You need repentance if you are to be a meek person. This is where meekness must begin. But then second, a second mark of meekness is unworthiness. You're acutely aware of your unworthy standing before God. You're not worthy of his blessings. You aren't worthy of the gifts that he's given to you. You aren't worthy of the opportunities he's given to you. You aren't even worthy of the salvation that he's bestowed on you. A sign of unworthiness, of truly coming to grips with this, uh, a meek soul, as Thomas Brooks once said, is someone who looks at another Christian and says, heaven is more of that man's than mine. Christ is more for that man than me. God is their God in covenant more than mine because that I am so unworthy of what God has given to me. Now, don't get me wrong here. Unworthiness is not to make us despair and feel like, well, God has nothing to do with me. That's not what it means. It's not supposed to leave you in desperation or depression or envy. What it is supposed to do, in fact, is to make you deeply thankful. And for truly coming to grips with your unworthiness before God, it makes you so grateful that God has saved you, that he has shown you mercy. He's been so good to you, much, much more than you or I ever deserve. This is what we need to see in meekness. Our unworthiness transforms into thankfulness. But then third, a third mark of meekness is service. Is service. If you're a meek person, you're ready to serve others, not take out revenge on them. Even in everyday situations, you're ready to serve without giving thanks. You don't do it for your own name. You don't do it for your own reputation to be acknowledged before people. You're doing it in order to serve others. You don't mind being small. You don't mind doing the boring things. You don't mind doing things even when they go unnoticed or under, they go unappreciated. You're pleased to help other people out because status and reputation are not on your agenda. That's what a meek person does. Desires to serve because Jesus himself was a servant. Examine your heart for that sign of service, sign of meekness. But then fourth, the fourth mark of genuine Christian meekness is also that you listen to people. Right? Prideful people, self-righteous people have no need to listen to other people, right? Because they know it all. They have all the answers. I have a problem, a question, I just look in, my, in myself. That's what a prideful person says. That's why the Pharisees couldn't receive Jesus' teaching. But a truly humble, a truly gentle, meek person is willing to listen. And so you, as a Christian, listen to people. You listen to their problems. You listen to their advice. You listen to their opinions. You listen to their Christ-like loving rebukes, even when it hurts. And you listen when people are sometimes a little bit boring. And you listen not when it's convenient, but because you're not full of yourself. You listen because you're not always seeking your own agenda. 
you humble yourself and learn to regard others more highly than yourself as Jesus did and as Paul commanded. Now, the opposite of meekness is harshness, a grasping spirit, vengefulness, self-aggrandizement, a lack of self-control, immediately vindicating or defending yourself. You know, check your heart too. If you are immediately defensive whenever anybody brings up a criticism, if rage fills your soul so that you go from one explosion to the next, if you're scheming, even now, how are you going to pay somebody back later for some perceived slight against you? could very well be signs that your heart is not right before God. You are not living in meekness. If that's the case, if that's you, go back to Mark 1. Repent. No Mark 2, your unworthiness before God. Ask him for his grace and mercy. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you a heart of service to others. You need to be able to listen to others if you're genuinely a meek Christian. But then fifth and finally, a mark of genuine meekness. You need to have this mark if you're going to have any of the others, in fact, is that you have to tie yourself to Jesus Christ. That's the mark of someone who's truly meek. You've tied yourself to Jesus Christ because he is, isn't he, the very incarnation of meekness. What we read earlier in the service, our assurance of pardon, the reading of the gospel, Paul said, or excuse me, Peter says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's a picture of his meekness, even when he suffered great injustice. And, and in Matthew 11, verse 29 Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm meek, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't call on Christians to learn how to perform miracles. He doesn't ask us to learn how to do that from them, from him. Jesus doesn't ask us to learn how to open the eyes of the blind. Jesus doesn't ask you to learn how to open the ears of the deaf. Jesus doesn't ask you to learn how to raise dead people to new life. But he does ask you to learn to be meek by looking to him, by being tied to him, by being yoked to him. Learn meekness from Jesus. You must be meek by being tied to Jesus. While Jesus was abused, Jesus was taken advantage of his entire earthly life, yet he never returned abuse with abuse. He never sought revenge against his enemies. While he opposed evil, he stood up against oppressive people and corrupt leaders. He never was obscene or disrespectful towards them. Jesus, the good shepherd, was devoured, thrown to the wolves at the end of his life. 
He was betrayed and arrested. He stood on trial before Pilate, was falsely accused, yet he did not accuse in return. He was like an innocent lamb. He was led to the slaughter. And after he was sentenced to death, he was struck. He was mocked, beaten, flogged, yet he never struck back. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in any one of those moments, could have called down legions of angels to decimate his enemies, and yet he did not. He entrusted himself entirely to the Father's will. So, friends, you see Jesus never did anything from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, he counted himself humble. He humbled himself and counted others more significant than himself. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a God thing to be grasped. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's strength. That's power under control. That's true meekness. It's no wonder then that Jesus describes himself as being gentle and lowly in heart. It's no wonder then that when we search our own longings, we find such a person to be the one to whom we must go for rest for our souls. So let me ask you then, as we conclude, have you found rest for your soul? Have you found rest for your soul in Jesus, the meek Savior? Have you tied yourself to him? Do you desire to grow in meekness, to put pride, to put a vengeful spirit to death? Jesus is calling you. He's calling me to examine ourselves. To be meek, you must be tied to Jesus. He is the gracious the gentle, the lowly shepherd. He kindly leads you along, guiding you in paths of righteousness. You must ask him, you must ask the Holy Spirit to help you to put your pride to death and come alive and putting on meekness in place of pride. You must ask That every day there would be more and more of Jesus in your life and less and less of yourself. This is the evidence that you're a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, meekness. As Charles Spurgeon put it, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in yourself. So as we listen to Jesus' teaching here, we must all examine ourselves. If you call yourself a Christian, you need to ask yourself, Is Jesus talking about me here? Am I poor in spirit? Do I mourn over my sin? Am I meek? And know that there's no one greater than Jesus that you could ever be tied to, no other savior, no other intercessor, no better king. There's no greater kingdom to which you can belong. For those who are citizens in the kingdom then, Christ's promise to you is sure. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Amen. Let's ask God to continue applying that word to our lives. Please pray with me.